listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Good morning. Welcome to today's remembrance. We've been celebrating as a church community uh, over Lent to prepare our hearts and minds for what today represents this theme of Jesus, the submitted King. I'm not sure if you've thought about this theme much, whether it's just rolling with the punches of looking at a Lenten book, or if you've actually considered the oxymoron that is in the title. This concept of submission being so foreign to our time and place, it almost gives us the heebie-jeebies. But we have here today a submitted king. Watchman Nee says that the chief, the central dispute in the universe is over who holds authority and who deserves to be worshipped. That is the undercurrent of all that happens within our world. And so to consider this topic of submission, how do you do that in a place and a world Oh, this is really heavy, Bjorn. Thank you. <laughs> Bjorn has done a great job. That is about the individual. That is about my freedom. That is about not having to submit to any other higher authority that is over you, that no one has control over your life and what you want. In our day and age particularly, that is a foreign concept, but it goes right back to Genesis 3, where the tempter and the snake came to mankind, humanity, Adam and Eve, and said, did God really say? And through that one act of mistrust, humanity decided to be like God. And yet we have this king who comes to earth and comes in human form and actually lives a life completely counter to that heartbeat and it is a life of submission and yet he's a king. If you haven't yet thought of the oxymoron of that, as we've been walking into Easter, I encourage you to consider that, that Jesus is a submitted king who achieves what no human can. Jesus as we follow the Gospels and we celebrate Christmas and we come a few months on to this Good Friday, we realise that Jesus was someone who had authority. There are over 10,000 books written per year on Jesus. Right? Most written about person in human history. Our calendar is, is revol- revolves around him. The shops are still shut today, even though they may not know why. My little neighbour yesterday came over for a visit, gave me licorice for Easter. And she's six, and I said, oh, do you know what Good Friday is about? She goes, nah. I said, do you believe in God? Nah. Can I tell you the story? Yeah. That that is the tone of our day, and yet Jesus is the most fascinating person to have walked the earth. And for the first part, two-thirds of the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is this Jesus that beholds incredible authority and does what no one else can do. We have miracles. We have a man who is able to heal disease. We have a man who's not able to just heal disease but can control creation. And we don't just have a man who is God who controls creation. We have a God who can control evil and the demons and the spiritual realm tremble at his presence. 
and they recognise who he is before the world recognises who he is and they don't like it. And so for the bulk of the life of Jesus, we have this story of a man who is God, who is king, and he walks with authority. And so to come to today, where he suffers the most humiliating death that has been known to mankind in the history of the world, it's almost impossible to get our heads around it. But how can this one who holds the universe together be completely exposed to just the rulers of the day and for the majority of his trial, stay silent. I want to take us through this week, culminating on today, but the week starts with this triumphal entry that we celebrated on Sunday called Palm Sunday. And he set his face like flint to Jerusalem because he knows why he's here. And he goes down the Mount of Olives, which is not that far from Jerusalem, but isn't Jerusalem itself. And it's set on this hill. And as he's going down, he organises a donkey, not quite the vehicle for a king. But as he gets on the donkey, it's almost like they don't even have to organise it. The crowds just throng to him. And the crowds come and the crowds shout these praises unsolicited. And they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And here we have, on that side of the week, the world, humanity, those in Israel saying, you're the king, and we dedicate you as king. And not only are you king, but you're king of Israel, and that's a big deal, because that is a, that is a Messiah, and that is a promise we've been looking for, for a very long time. And you are finally here, and we declare you as that king. And as he goes, just the throngs of, of palm trees go before him and people come out as he walks down or goes down the street with his donkey. And so we look at that and go, wow, the people knew who he was. The people knew he was king. But on the other hand, it's a donkey. And I'm not sure about the palm fronds. <laughs> I don't know what that's about or what it's in representation of. We know about it this side of the story. If I was on that side of the story and if I was a Roman centurion going by on my stallion at the time, to me, I wouldn't be in awe of that procession. A procession to me would involve a chariot of gold. I would have stallions kind of, you know, straining at the reins and I'd have spikes in my wheels that would glisten in the sun. That it would be overtly obvious that this is a king who deserves to be worshipped. And so I'd kind of just go by on my horse, kind of go, whatever. If I was doing a Roman parade based on the world, behind the procession would be the poor, the oppressed and those who had defied Rome the people made a mockery of, warning everybody else what happens when you defy the ways of the world. And yet this Jesus on a, rock, on, a, on a donkey, it's actually the poor and the oppressed and the forgotten and the neglected that are actually leading the procession. So from the beginning of the week, we have a story that turns down our understanding and it turns it inside out and back to front. And of course, the Pharisees are threatened. The whole time they've been threatened, they haven't liked this Jesus. And, and they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They're worshipping you. And Jesus replies, 
I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, they're doing precisely what they've been born to do. And they're doing what the entire created order has been made to do. And that is to celebrate and worship the king. So this is Sunday. This is what we've just celebrated. And yet I'm not sure how I feel or maybe I relate to that we have this crowd of people that are crying out, Hosanna to the king on a Sunday and then crucify him. It feels a little bit too close to home for me as I, as I reflect on it. That week, as we celebrated last night, was Passover, the most significant festival in the Jewish calendar still is to this day. The celebration of when the nation of Israel is called out from an empire and from an oppressive regime to become the people of God and a holy nation chosen because God's chosen them. Not because they're special, but they're special because he decided that he was going to be their God. And so they celebrate this freedom of slavery, that a, a story of a God overruling the greatest empire of the time, Egypt. And so they're sitting there at this Passover with an incredible buzz in the air because they know who they're sitting with at the table. I'm not sure who was the greatest at your table last night, but on this night, the Messiah himself was there. So the bars in the room when they broke the lamb and the lamb shank came out, they went through the rituals and they sang the hymns. You can only imagine the papable sense of something incredibly special happening. But then Jesus says strange things. He says, I give to you a kingdom. And then he says, I have overcome the world. And so if they weren't already excited, they're like, wow. Although good things may, in that time would have been rare, happened in their external world. This met the core desire and ache of their soul. That finally we have this king and he is, he is with us. They had natural expectations of what they would mean, particularly on the back of the story of Egypt. That this Jesus and this king was going to free them from the world. The burden, the confusion, the control, the manipulation, the power, the struggle, that no matter what, the set hierarchy is the set hierarchy and it doesn't matter where you're born, you're going to stay there. So when they hear, I give to you a kingdom and I have overcome the world, they hear... Rome's going to be dissolved. And just like I freed you out of Egypt, I'm going to free you from this oppressive regime. And so again, that sense of freedom. But Jesus had something completely different in mind. This echoes part of the Lenten readings we've done where Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. I'm not sure if there's a greater, truer story than this one. Where that, where that ends up being the case. As the evening goes on, Jesus starts to do something strange. John 13 tells us, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So he got up from the meal, took off his robe, and wrapped a towel around 
his waist. In the ceremony, if you were at Passover last night, we have this symbolism of water and the need and the desire to cleanse ourselves before we engage in the celebration so that we can enter the presence of God and who he is. And Jesus takes it one step further. And he puts on the garb of a slave and he kneels at their feet. And they've already washed their hands, but no one ever washed their feet. And he starts to grab a cloth and he starts to offer to wash their feet. Um, I'm not sure that I'd want that to happen to me today or this day. I don't know how your feet are going. I was at a friend's house during the week. It was hot, so I had sandals, took my sandals off. Four-year-old, do you want me to massage your feet? Always. And before I know, oh, poor, your feet stink. <laughs> Fair call. But in this time and place, what we have is no one washed anyone's feet. This was, a, this was a role, this was a task that not even a Jewish slave would do. No one was expected to wash feet. And Jesus went one by one around the table, will you let me wash your feet? Will you, will you let me wash your feet? Will you let me wash your feet? Peter, one of my favourites, is like, oh, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless you let me wash you, you can have no part with me. Unless you let me wash you, you can have no part with me. So Peter goes, well, then you just may as well wash the whole lot. Just take me all. Which, which I love. It's an apt response. But later that same evening... Before I go there, I just want to share a quote from a theologian called Yoda. (laughs) Until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to get on top. And once he had gotten on top, to stay on top, or else attempt to get farther up. But he, this man already on top, who was rabbi, teacher, master, God himself, suddenly got down on the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. In that one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order, hardly comprehending what was happening. Even his own disciples were almost horrified by his behaviour. But unless you let me wash you, you can have no part with me. But later that same evening, the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest. Passover is a big meal. They were full. There'd been a number of discussions. But probably the most confronting discussion was in the middle of the evening. Jesus kind of drops a bombshell. He says, by the time this night is over, one of you will betray me. And again, one by one, the disciples are like, is it me, God? Is it me, God? Is it me, God? Is it me, God? It gets to Judas. Judas already feels confronted because he's already got the 30 bits of silver that is exchanged for Jesus' life. And Jesus is like, yep, it's you. You know it's you. It differs in degree, the the sense of betrayal that Judas did with Jesus. But it's kind of the seed that's in the heart of all mankind. It's, It's in the heart of me. By the end of the evening, all of the disciples had betrayed Jesus in one way, shape or form. Jesus had, Peter had denied him three times 
once, not twice, three times. I love it. Philip Yancey says that um, when it became clear that Jesus' kind of kingdom led to a cross, not a throne, each one slunk away in the darkness. And so being full, having had the four cups of wine, depending which cedar meal you're following, some of you might have had seven. So they're kind of drunk on that sort of full satisfaction of a good meal with good lamb. So they go for a walk and they're kind of in that dozy peace you have when your stomach is satisfied. But Jesus felt no peace. And whilst they fall in that sort of post-Sunday lunch slumber, Jesus is um, not in a good place. We have Luke telling us that he began to be sorrowful and, and troubled. The Passion Translation says that an intense feeling of great sorrow plunged his soul. Mark says he felt deeply distressed. and goes on to quote Jesus, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Would you guys please stay here and keep watch? That this Jesus, who often went and spent time in solitude, he loved it. This time, did not want to be alone. And you can almost see the desperation within his being, just going to his disciples who keep falling asleep. Would you please, just for one hour, will you please be with me? Would you please sit with me? I'm not doing well. And it's, it's here that things get real. It's here in this isolation. It's here in this darkness. It's here, this submitted king, knowing exactly what is about to transpire. He knew it was going to happen, but there's something like knowing it's in the future, but when it's real, it's there, it's now time, that's another story. And so he cries out to his father, who he's been dependent on the whole time, please, if you're willing, take this cup from me. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it, not because it was a incredibly agonising death, which it was, it's traumatic. He didn't want to do it because he knew all of the, the pain and the evil and the suffering and the burden of humanity and actually the punishment that was due the world was going to be completely absorbed in him. He didn't want to do it because of thought of being separated from his father. Created so much turmoil and stress within his being that he, he sweats blood. It's not a phenomenon we hear very often. But the stress that the capillaries and the veins are going through to actually sweat blood is of an incredible intense space. Any of us that have had panic attacks have just had a smidgen of a taste of the stress someone is in. This is not something he wanted to do. He follows this request with, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's here. This is the greatest act of submission. A completely innocent human who knew no sin, who also happens to be the fullness of God, surrendering to an authority that is bigger than himself, 
who could be bigger than God. A God who has a heart for those who aren't there yet. A God who has a heart who cannot betray his character by very definition and who is both just and loving and so has to be able to satisfy both completely. Watchman Nee talks about this section and and he says, the victory of the cross is real and deserves to be celebrated, but it's actually here, but it's won. The cross is vitally important, but it's actually the submission to do the cross that matters. If he went on the cross and it wasn't an act of submission, it, it is redundant. What is key is that this is a submissive king that he would deny his will, he would deny his wants. He would deny what he thought should happen and how it should happen because he was submitting to to a greater God. And in this, he was able to do what Adam and Eve were not able to do. Adam and Eve found it really difficult to trust God. Trust is hard. Trust is something that needs to be earned. It's something that needs to be shown over time. And Jesus knew that he knew that he knew. He could trust the Father. And so if the Father says, this is my will, he's there. He doesn't question it. And with that, it's almost as if we have a change in posture of Jesus and he says, arise, let us be going. Knowing that this is the deal, knowing that this is the will, he has a clarity and a confidence. And the Gospels say, like, he was resolute. He set his face like flint. Isaiah talks about that too, that I'm going to set my face like flint and nothing is going to get in the way. Nothing that is in my own understanding or in the world or what I think is the way it should be. If I know and I've got clarity, I'm going to set my face like flint and I'm going to do the will that you've set for me. So he's resolute and he's determined and you can almost go, right, I'm bracing myself, we're doing this now. This is go time. And so with what follows, even though by the world's standards, we are going to have a weak and defenceless man, you actually get this ironic sense that he's in charge of the whole thing. To the world, it's a mockery, but to God, he's in control. And so we then go to a trial, and over the next 24 hours, Jesus is thrown amongst six trials, some between the Jews, some between the Romans. It's like they all wanted him dead, but no one wanted to take responsibility. He'd offended everyone. He'd offended the power-hungry Herod. He'd offended the Sanhedrin that loves the status quo. He offended the Jewish leaders that had a set understanding of what religion is and expectations within it. And he'd offended the people who all of a sudden changed their mind. Hosanna, the king of Israel, to crucify him. And caught up within the swell of the crowd, they'd changed their mind like that, including partly his disciples. And the reason was, is that Jesus posed a threat to the whole entire establishment. The way the world worked, the way we want the world to work, it wasn't how he lived. 
it wasn't what he was teaching, it wasn't what we wanted, we didn't like the challenge that he set before us. And so we like to keep it safe. We like to keep it controlled. We like to keep it in our understanding. We like to keep it in our little box. And so Pilate announces the harshest verdict under Roman law, and he calls him to be crucified. He doesn't have his friends with him. He has some women who follow from behind. And when we look at this, Jesus, the submitted king, it looks like he's a victim. But as I said before, this is this ironic sense that he's in charge the whole time. To this God that could command out demons at the beginning of the story, heal diseases, raise the dead, we have this Jesus completely defenceless. And perhaps this is the greatest miracle of them all. At any stage, he could have called down the powers of heaven. Legions of angels to come and rescue him. At any stage, he could have chosen, Father, I'm just, I'm willing to follow you with everything, just not this. Philip Yancey calls this the miracle of restraint. That despite the fact he could have, he didn't. Politician and poet Cicero from that, that era said that the idea of the cross should never come near the bones of the Roman citizen. To those who are in the empire and the control and the order of the world, that idea shouldn't even cross their mind. He says it should never pass through their thoughts, their eyes or their ears. This is too much an affront to the way the world should work. And yet Jesus chooses the very vehicle in which to show that his counter-narrative actually speaks a different story. Jesus is mainly silent this time. You just hear the rebukes and the mockery of people. The other people being crucified on his left and on his right. He's mainly silent. There's a couple of things that he says. The first one is, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Their life and their perspective is shaped on this. And they don't yet know there is a whole other reality to how this whole thing works. They don't know. And I'm doing this so that they can actually break free from that and be part of a whole new world order. And so I look at this, and I don't know if you've seen the passion I encourage you to. It's not something to shy away from. It's something to be genuinely looked at and absorbed. But I go, if he could have at any stage just called quits, why didn't he? With every lash of the whip, with every punch of fist against flesh, with the thorns being put in his head, and then as they lie and stand on the cross, what um, the criminal does is they have to shift their weight from the nails to the, in their hands to the weight of the nails in their feet because they just have to keep rotating it. Every time he did that, he could have called down those angels. Why didn't he do it? And the only thing we can conceive is he had a bigger perspective in mind. He had a bigger goal, which meant that he could go through with this. And the rest of the Gospels and the rest 
of the epistles, the New Testament, tell us why. And a couple of those passages include Colossians 2. Sorry. The Son of Man became a curse for us. That the curse due us, he actually absorbs. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Where in the world's eyes he'd been defeated, Jesus had actually defeated the world. They missed it. But creation knew. As Jesus said, if they don't sing my praises, the rocks will cry out. Just before he dies, the sky goes black. There is an earthquake. The rocks split in two. The curtain in the temple is torn as well. And the Roman centurion and a few others, just a few meagre people left as Jesus is dying, <coughs> recognise it and goes, oh, surely this was the son of God. Creation knew. Mankind didn't. Jesus had outsmarted the world and evil by taking it all on himself. He did it by trusting the Father. He did it by completely submitting his will. His death is the key and submission is the way. Yet my default is this. I like the story of Good Friday particularly when I know about Easter Sunday. This is my safe place. It makes more sense. I'm in greater control. My flesh loves this place. My spirit wants this place. You'll notice there's no box here. But this is, is, is just a bit more comfortable. My way. My wants, my desires. Follow this Jesus here. Not sure about here because that's scary. I don't know if I can trust him. I'm not sure how or if that resonates with you. We feel this is more trustworthy, this is more real, but it's also really heavy. Walking around with a box of rocks. Every social gathering, every day at work every issue with family dynamics. What I should do with my mortgage. Can I even have a mortgage? What are we gonna do with the political situation? What are we gonna do with anxiety? What are we gonna do with depression? Could chuck money at it. And so although this is our default, it's not going so well. So what Jesus is doing on Good Friday, is he saying, I'm showing you the way I have to do it. And I'm not just showing you, I'm going to do it for you. And where Adam and Eve could not fully trust the Father, I'm going to fully trust the Father as the new human to show you what can happen and to show you that it works and that this is the one authority you can perfectly and completely submit to. So how... 
do we get to this place? Sounds great and a Good Friday message, but how? Jesus says, let me wash you. Unless you let me wash you, you can have no part of me. This week, an 800-year-old famous cathedral was burnt down by just happenstance, like genuine error. I think it had taken 23 minutes before they realised that there was a fire in the building and by then it had taken hold and there was nothing that could be done to actually rectify this. I confess that it wasn't until this morning that I realised the significance of this. So I'm sitting there going, Jesus, what is it you want to say? Is it a coincidence that this happened at Holy Week? One of the most acclaimed cathedrals in the world, centre point of French culture and heart and understanding, gets burnt down. You can imagine this is, this is a dagger in the heart of the French psyche. But I've been listening to Radio National and 774. It appears the whole world is up in arms. But, but we don't care about this stuff anymore. Why is the whole world coming out of the woodwork going, this is devastating? And then on Radio National, they're all sharing stories about when they sat on the steps and ate lunch at Notre Dame and how their whole life has fallen apart now that Notre Dame has burnt down. In an article, an um, American journalist is like, why has this burning on Notre Dame moved so many people? Because despite this, we believe in beauty, majesty, faith, art, and history, and human experience. And now there is a scar that has emerged to all our connections. So scar is on our past, a scar is on our future, and our scar is between each other. Huh. I thought that was interesting. To a sec one of the most secular nations in the world. When the smoke had disappeared and they were able to get rid of every flame and every ember, the firemen walked into the main chamber. And this is what one of the firemen saw. It's not in buildings. It's not in achievement, it's not in status, it's not even in your history. He's reminding the world what it's about. So he comes to you this morning and he goes, will you let this go? Because I don't know that it's working very well anyway. Would you enter into the life? The cross is the door. It's not the room. Enter into this whole other life that I have for you. Let me wash you. So Easter shows us that God's power, authority and will is not found here. It's found here, over here. It reveals our true condition, whether it be on the spectrum of pride and control or to just complete despair and brokenness and inability to feel that we can do it speaks to the same 
human condition. And it speaks that we don't have to do it because he did. Easter enables us to surrender and walk into a whole new way. And so during that Passover meal, Jesus took the bread, the matzah. He broke it and he said, gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, broken for you, eat eat it, feast. And then he poured the wine, assuming he was here on the table. According to Da Vinci, he was in the middle. And he poured the wine and he said, "This, this is my blood, this is a whole new way. This is a whole new covenant and so I want you to drink this in remembrance of me. And so today, as we come before communion table, I invite you of all days to sit on these things and invite him to let him wash you. And may it not just be your feet, but your head, your arms, your hands, your body, your all. If you're visiting today, we have communion on the left and on the right. Uh, For those who would like prayer, particularly today, there will be people available for you to pray. Um, And I really encourage you to take that. But for now, let us remember.